Um, okay, well, welcome again, everyone, here on this day, and welcome again, everyone, online. We're going to take a little look in a little bit more depth at this parable of the ten bridesmaids, uh, sometimes called the parable of the foolish bridesmaids, even though only five of them were foolish. Uh, they get the parable named after them. But a little bit of background is kind of needed on this parable, because as they start getting into wedding practices, wedding practices are really different then than they are today. And so the way it worked back then is weddings were what they call patrilocal. There's your anthropology term for the day, patrilocal, which means they would be at the groom's or the husband's family's location. So the way it would work was usually the dads would arrange the marriage, and the couple may or may not know each other, but it was then the groom's job, and he would usually grab a couple guys with him, and they would go to the bride's family's village house family compound, pick up the bride, and bring her back to the groom's house, and that's where they would have the wedding. And uh, so they would have to go get her. Well, this is a world with no cell phones or phones or anything, so the groom gets on his horse, donkey, whatever he uses, and goes there, and you don't know when he's going to come back. Now, when he would come back, it was the expectation that the unmarried, the young unmarried women in the family were in charge of being the hosts, the attendants for this new bride. And that was a, the whole that was a family expectation. So that they were what we translate as bridesmaids, but it's a little bit different. You know, this was more kind of you had to do it. It wasn't like you pick your four best friends and then you fight over dresses, right? Um, and uh, but, the, but they were attending. I mean, they did have the job of attending to the bride. And so part of what it was was the expectation of the bride's family would be, look, I'm sending my daughter over to you. You better take care of her. If she gets over to the house and nobody's there, that is an offense to the bride's family, right? I'm sending her over. You better take care of her. If you're not taking care of her. So there's a little bit of family pressure on those brides, right? Bridesmaids. They better have that... They better have their lights ready for when that groom comes in. And so we get the story, right? Five grab extra oil, five don't. And then the ones who don't bother with the extra oil, they run out. And so then they do what we would all think they would do. They ask the others to share. And the others, I love this, they're like, no. No, you don't get my oil. Go, you go back into town and get your own oil. And uh, so then they do, you know. Now, if I, if I was a prepper, if I was one of those people getting ready for the apocalypse, you know, this would be my Bible verse. Matthew 25, I'd emblazon it over my bunker. And uh, because, you know, how's the story end? You better be prepared, right? You better stock up. You don't know when Jesus is coming. You don't know when it's going to happen. Now, I read this parable, you know, it's kind of sad. My first thought was, the foolish bridesmaids probably would not have gone back into town at midnight to go knock on the oil guy's door. You know what they would have done? They would have tried to take the other bridesmaids' oil. And then we would have had a brawl. And then it would have been real bridesmaids of Jerusalem. And we would have called Andy Cohen. And he could have come in and narrated it. 
fabulously. Because, right, isn't that what preppers will tell you? You don't just have to stock up on food, you have to stock up on guns, because when the apocalypse comes, everyone who didn't get the food is going to take yours. But that's what, the, you know, but this is a big deal. This was a big deal in the early church. Being prepared for the kingdom of God, being prepared for Jesus to come, being prepared for when God was going to speak. And there's a lot of parables that Jesus gives along this same lines of be prepared, you don't know when. Be prepared, you don't know when. And Jesus was serious that this kingdom of God was coming, that it was going to change things, that it was going to make a difference, and you better be ready. And we know, we do know, from the writings of Paul, that some of the earliest churches, some of the ones he had planted, those ones in the first 30 years of Jesus, um, they were all gung-ho about Jesus coming back. We know Paul thought, in his earlier writings, Jesus would come before he died. And so we know when he, by the time he gets to Romans, he's sad that Jesus hasn't come in his life. So Paul took this very seriously. And we know that the early Christians were very excited about the idea of Jesus coming again and this kingdom of God coming and, and, and Rome falling and this kingdom of God wiping it all out. We know they were really excited about this. And we know because in books like 1 Thessalonians, it, we hear talk of where the people were so excited, they literally did what Jesus said. They sold all their possessions, they gave it to the poor, and they went on the mountain to wait. And Paul hears about it, and is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, we, know, we, we were all excited about him coming, but, you know, if he doesn't come tomorrow, you don't, guys don't have food. Let's pull it back just a little bit. But I had to sit and wonder, what would make people so eager to get out of life, get out of their current life, that they're willing to actually sell everything and just risk it all like that? And then you got to think about how Rome worked. Rome was a great place to live if you were one of the like top 1%. There it was luxury beyond imagination. But pretty much everybody else, life was just a hard slog. They, I just read that they, somebody's estimating a third of all people in the Roman Empire were slaves. A third. And that's the slaves. That's not all the menial laborers, all the peasant farmers, all the people stuck in prison, all the guys drafted into the army and stuck sitting in a rainy tower in Scotland trying to keep the Celts away. No, it wouldn't be the Celts. It'd be the Picts. Got to get my, come on, got to get my Roman history right here. And so you had a small number of people who were really good, a lot of people really miserable, and there was no upward mobility. None. You, you either were born well or you weren't. And so along comes Paul, and he's saying that Jesus is going to come, and Jesus is going to return, and he's going to change things. And you can imagine when you feel like you're stuck in a dead end, the thought that it's all going to blow up is really exciting, right? If you're sitting in your cubicle and you have a horrible boss, and your management is incompetent, right? And the district manager just got his job because his dad had it. And you realize you're never getting that promotion because he's got a son too. And then you hear the place might get bought out. 
and suddenly everybody's at Boston's throwing a party. But you got to be careful. Don't party too quick, right? Don't burn your bridges if the sail doesn't go through. But you can imagine that feeling. It's so dead end. Oh, we got to get out of this. So this was good news. This end time stuff was really good news. And for the early Christians, this idea that Jesus was coming and that there was light at the end of the tunnel, that there was a hope beyond this, it was a really freeing thought. Because the thinking was, if I don't have to put up with this, I can do whatever I want. You mean, I don't have to be beholden to Rome and its rules. I can be free. And the way Paul worked when he built his church and put things together is he was very much kind of just get people together now. You know, okay, you own a lot of land, join the church, come together now. You're a prostitute, join, come together now. You're a slave, come together now. Just bring everybody together. And when he brought everybody together in the church, he said, look, we're all one body, we're all here together, you know, let's not worry about those old divisions. We're not going to set up a, a special spot at the table, and it, all that stuff doesn't matter. All the hierarchies don't matter because Jesus is coming. Let's just get together now. And it was a very freeing kind of community for a lot of people to know that it was coming to an end. And it was very egalitarian for its day. This idea that Jesus was going to come and wipe it all, just wipe it clean. We know that Paul, for example, had a, the church in Philippi was run by a couple women. Uh, they were wealthy uh, Romans, they had converted to Christianity, and they used their house as the church. They met in the, their courtyard of their, big ma- of their mansion, said they were extremely wealthy. Paul was okay with that. He didn't care. Why? Jesus is coming. Paul wasn't going to sweat the details of trying to establish hierarchies. It's why when you read Paul's letters, you don't get a lot of stuff about you know, who's the head, or who's submitting, or who's obeying, or all this kind of hierarchy language. You don't get that in Paul, because all that matters is let's keep people together, right? It made Paul, in a sense, very progressive, and it made the Christian community an alternative to the Roman world around them. Now, somebody's going to point out, but Lars... I read the New Testament. What about that verse in 1 Timothy 2 that says, I permit no woman to have authority over a man? I know churches where that's what they might as well be blazing above their thing, where that's the rock they will die, the hill they will die on. Right? I went to a church conference in Seattle, and the senior pastor stood right up front and said, I don't even let guest speakers up on this stage if they allow women elders. Like, wow, that's the rock you die on. That guy was later found, like, swindling money and doing all sorts of other malfeasance, which apparently that's okay. But what you'll find is that those rules, they are definitely in the New Testament. They weren't actually written by Paul. Now, if you want to get into the weeds about how we know that Timothy wasn't actually written by Paul, even though it has Paul's name on it, see me at a Bible study. It's a really long boring, parsing Greek words kind of thing. It, it, it'll cure your insomnia real quick. But, the, but what happened was, Paul's community was this really freed up community, but then Jesus didn't show. And so, 
And so then the Romans started paying attention and saying, what? They're letting their Christians are talking about freeing the slaves and letting the women do whatever they want. Oh, society's going to collapse. And so then the early church got nervous and said, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. We'll put people back in their place again. We'll be good Romans. But that wasn't Paul. Paul was not a good Roman. The Romans cut his head off. That's how good of a Roman he was. Nero killed him. So this was how it was. It was a very freeing thing. And so a lot of this goes back to how you view the world of whether Jesus is returning or not, and how you view God working in the world. And this is kind of where I always come back with these passages, because I don't honestly think that most of us in 2023 are sitting here thinking to ourselves, you know, Jesus could be coming tomorrow. Am I ready? Am I prepared? You know, if, if the end time, if the four horsemen start marching down Ina Road, they will get stalled, first of all. They'll get, they'll get caught in an accident at Meredith and Ina pulling out of the El Molinito. But once they get over that, most of us are not like, oh, you know, if the horsemen come, am I ready? Am I re no, we're not thinking that. I think most of us, we got no urgency whatsoever. Right? At least of us in mainline church, we got no urgency about Jesus coming again. He might not come for another thousand years. I don't know. We don't even bother thinking about it, right? We've kind of given up on that. And so I'm not even sure how much we prepare ourselves in our own lives for, Je for Jesus even coming into our lives now. For Jesus even speaking now. Okay, maybe, maybe he doesn't come flying out of the clouds like it says in Thessalonians, but you know, do we, God's still speaking. Are we listening? Are we listening? For, are we ready for Jesus even speaking to us today? I mean, I think it makes a difference in how you view the world around you. If you are thinking that God might be speaking and talking to you anywhere, anytime, if you're listening all the time, you'll look at things differently. Now, I'll admit, I will admit, when I go over to work out at the Northwest Y, and I've been a member there for many years, now, if you know how the Northwest Y works, the architectural genius who designed it put the whole gym way up on the hill, gave a small number of parking spaces, then a road, then two stories of steps, then the rest of the parking. Well, guess where everyone wants to park? Up here, at the gym. And I will admit, that if I'm driving around my car and I see one of those open spots, you know, up top, I get excited, and if I hear somebody go, oh, thank God it was open, I'm like, yeah, thank God it was open at the gym. You saved yourself 15 calories by not walking up the hill to your stair machine. And I'm like, and you think God's busy opening spots for you at the gym? Doesn't God have more important things to do? And then I realize why I snicker. Because I wanted that spot too. I don't want to walk down that hill. I'm like, man, maybe I'm so judgy because I'm jealous. Or maybe I should be listening a little bit more. Is God trying to tell me something? Maybe I should ask. Is God trying to give me a lesson in patience? When I listen to people talk, 
Am I listening for God speaking, even if the people don't like me? Because sometimes people who don't like you can tell you something that's true. If my enemy says the world is round, it's still round. Is that person teaching me something about God that I haven't experienced yet, but I've closed it off because I'm too, I'm too smug and enlightened to think that God is still speaking? Am I not prepared? Am I not ready? I can't, I can't possibly have all the answers. Am I listening? Am I opened up? I think it's good to adopt a posture, a spiritual posture, of being open to God speaking when you don't expect it. To be prepared to be surprised is how I would word it. You don't know the day or the hour, you don't know where it's going to come, but if you're not ready to be surprised, you won't be surprised and you might miss it. I need to be open to God speaking to me through the homeless guy that I'm dodging on the bike path as much as the radio personality who validates all my political views. I need to be open to the points made by people who don't like me because maybe there's truths there. I need to be ready to be surprised because I don't know when Jesus is going to speak. I need to open myself up to take time and patience. God might not speak as quickly as I'd like. It could take time to hear something. Am I stocking up on enough oil to be ready? to have the light on when he speaks? I hope so. I hope I'm ready. But I try to remind myself of that. Amen.